last speaker will address the virus that we haven't really talked about that much. Dr. Andrew Aronson from the University of Chicago will discuss challenges in the management and treatment of co-infected individuals, HIV, HCV. Andrew. Thank you very much. All right, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's always good, they always get the local guy to go last, so hopefully everybody is uh, caffeinated up enough and ready to go just for 30 more minutes. And it was really interesting, I'm glad we did the survey early on, and it seems like about half the people here are treating some co-infected patients. Not that many people are treating mono-infected HCV patients, uh, and about half the people are not. So my, my goal for the next half hour or so is to um, kind of give you guys a little bit of a background about treating hepatitis C itself uh, with a special emphasis on co-infected patients. Um, I do not have any disclosure. Um, so what we're going to do, uh, I'm going to start off talking a little bit about um, hepatitis C and some of the progression to fibrosis and some of the factors uh, that will either speed up or slow down progression to fibrosis, um, which is very important when we think about hepatitis C. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about therapy and the current therapy that's available. Um, and then we'll go into a little bit of time talking about some of the barriers uh, that we see to treatment. Um, so co-infection is very different than mono-infection as far as the disease process of the hepatitis C itself. Um, so there are higher rates of susceptibility to transmission in many patients with HIV, higher rates of persistence, meaning the hep C will s more likely to stick around and develop a chronic infection in HIV co-infected patients, and really, really important oops, is a faster rate of, of fibrosis. So patients, and I'm going to show you some data um, that are co-infected with HIV and hepatitis C are going to have problems sooner than just the mono-infected hepatitis C patients. And because of this, they'll have higher rates of cirrhosis, um, and because of that, of course, higher incidence of liver-related mortality. Um, so this is where me, as a hepatologist, I get a little bit embarrassed talking to a room full of ID doctors who care for patients with HIV, because our care cascade is fairly miserable compared to your care cascades, and we have quite a lot of work to do. Um, you can see in the United States, uh, we got about uh, 35, uh, 3.5 million people uh, that are infected with hepatitis C. Uh, about half of those are aware of their diagnosis. Um, less than half of those have access to outpatient care de dedicated to hepatitis C. And we'll kind of skip down to the last bar, only 9% have achieved cure. Um, so when I was watching a few different care cascades as the day went on, all your bars in HIV are a lot higher than ours. This is a huge, huge problem. Uh, we have a very, very long way to go. Okay, so just as a background and just as a basis to what happens in hepatitis C, um, it's a very long timetable from the time of infection until patients start having clinical problems related to their hepatitis C. So the majority, if you recall, the majority of patients that are infected with hepatitis C are going to develop a chronic infection. Probably about 80% of people, maybe even more in the HIV co-infected population, will develop a chronic infection of hepatitis C. That inflammation is going to lead to fibrosis of the liver, uh, and anywhere from about 20 years to about 50 years, patients are at risk of advanced fibrosis and developing cirrhosis. Once these patients develop cirrhosis, they're at risk of developing liver cancer, uh, dying from end stages of liver disease and all the decompensation of liver disease, um, or needing a liver transplant. Um, so here is really hitting home as, as far as progression to fibrosis and how much faster it is in the HIV co-infected patient. And what I really want you guys to take home 
is these co-infected patients are really the top of the priority list of people we need to treat for their hepatitis C. And it's because of this reason right here. So the blue bars are mono-infected patients, and the gold or yellow bars are the co-infected patients. And you can see the proportion of people that are going to develop cirrhosis um, over 25 years is so much higher in the co-infected population uh, when compared to the hep C mono-infected population. So the ASLD and IDSA guidelines recommend really prioritizing these folks um, for treatment because they are at such a higher risk of developing cirrhosis over a shorter period of time. And that's a very key point. So why is that? Um, I'm sparing you, I promise this is the only slide that looks like this because I realize it's kind of late in the day. Um, but there's a lot of different reasons why HIV can accelerate progression of hep C. One of them is immune activation uh, of bystander immune cells. Bacterial translocation can cause increases in LPS, immune dysregulation. So from all of these different ways and all of the uh, modulation that HIV has on the immune system, this in itself can cause fibrosis. The other thing is the treatment. So some of the treatments for HIV can also cause fibrosis in the liver. So you combine these two and it really explains why um, these people are going to progress to cirrhosis a whole lot faster uh, than the mono-infected HCV patients. Okay, so what are some of the factors? What are the ones we can do something about and what are the ones that we can't do something about? So um, the first is, you guys have learned all day and you're all seem like very experienced treaters, is treat their HIV. So patients that have HIV under good control um, are going to have less liver disease and there's a lot of good data that shows with CD4 counts that are greater than 200, these patients are going to have less of a progression of fibrosis and less disease down the road. Um, counseling patients about alcohol consumption, you can see some data here. Um, I tell patients that when you have hepatitis C and drink alcohol, it's kind of like pouring gas on the fire. So we're going to talk a lot about therapy, we're going to talk a lot about difficulty with access to therapy, but a very, very easy thing that you can do just in that first visit is counsel patients about reducing alcohol use and if possible abstaining altogether because that's going to make a big difference. Patients who acquire hepatitis C at an older age um, will also have um, faster progression to fibrosis, although it's a little bit of an equalizer because they may not have as much time behind them that they've actually had the infection. Other things that are modifiable, uh, good control of diabetes. So diabetes and insulin resistance will cause fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease can cause increased progression to fibrosis, um, so that is something that we like to um, try to control as best we can. Certainly if they're on uh, antiretroviral therapies that have these issues, you want to make sure you're looking out for that in co-infected patients. Co-infected with hepatitis B. So this is something that oftentimes is covered by their HIV regimen, but if a patient has risk factors for HIV, they probably have risk factors for hepatitis B and C. So certainly screen these patients and make sure they're on an appropriate regimen. Uh, there's data kind of going both ways about marijuana use. Uh, but it is thought to be possibly a progressor of fibrosis. Now here's the good news. So I'm looking at the first table. We have one, two, three, four, we'll count that, five. Five coffee cups, that's good. So you guys are protected for liver disease as long as you drink probably like four or five of those cups of coffee. So there's actually very good data. So everyone drink up, hit the coffee bar, go nuts. Um, there's actually good data and there's more and more data showing that drinking coffee um, can help slow down progression of liver disease uh, in patients that are infected with hepatitis C. So I don't know if you guys have patients that come in and say, oh yeah, I'm really trying to cut down on the coffee. 
Tell them to go nuts. Give them, give them something good to go for. We, we're, we're taking all this fun stuff away from them. Give them, give them back their coffee just for liver disease. So this is uh, just some kind of interesting data. And actually, this has been reproduced uh, in a lot of different studies, so there's probably some uh, validity to it. Okay, but you know, there's only so much coffee that you can drink, so patients were still at some point going to actually have to treat their hepatitis C. And this is uh, the timeline of what's happened in the last uh, 30 years or so uh, with hep C therapy. Again, slightly embarrassing as a hepatologist because our curves look way worse than the HIV curves. We've had a lot slower improvement in control of this disease than in the HIV world, again, uh, showing a, a big need for our patients. So back in the mid-'80s, um, interferon was used, um, and interferon for anywhere from 6 to 12 months. This was a monotherapy. Had a very, very poor um, uh, response rate, so it was less than 10%. The y-axis is SVR, or cure, so you can see uh, a very small percentage of patients were cured of their hepatitis C. Um, in the late 80s, 90s, ribavirin was added to this regimen, so it was interferon and ribavirin, and that was kind of played around with in different regimens and different kinds of um, dosages, and the best we could do was get about 50% of people cured. And that's kind of a, not really a real number because most patients, if anyone has ever treated somebody with interferon, um, most of the patients you're going to see are not going to be candidates for interferon for one reason or another, and the ones that are are going to probably go off that medication regimen because uh, it's pretty toxic, and those patients are likely to never come see you again because it was such a miserable experience. So May of 2011 was a big deal in hepatitis C therapy because that was when we had our first direct antiviral agent, or DAA, uh, which was a protease inhibitor that was given in conjunction with interferon and ribavirin. Uh, this triple therapy boosted response rates, you can see, from about 55% to 75%, um, except this was in an even more toxic regimen, uh, very, very poor tolerability. Fast forward to where we are today, we finally kind of gotten there as far as therapy. So the example that I've given you is sofosfavir and ledipasvir. This is a medication regimen that is given for a lot of patients uh, with genotype 1 and 4 infection. Uh, three months of therapy, one pill a day, it has about a 97% cure rate. Um, so we've finally gotten there uh, for uh, hepatitis C monotherapy uh, with very, very high cure rates. So different than a lot of other viral infections, hepatitis C is a pretty wimpy disease as far as curing the virus. So we can actually cure hepatitis C. Our goal is not, immune, is not suppression, is not to make it dormant, it's actually to cure the disease. It's total eradication. Um, and that's called an SVR, sustained virologic response. So beyond just viral eradication, a lot of really good things happen when patients are cured of their hepatitis C. The first is improved liver histology. So these are studies that are dating back, you know, even a decade where you'll take a patient that has advanced fibrosis or even cirrhosis, cure their hepatitis C, and then biopsy them a couple of years later. And what you'll see is there's a substantial percent of patients, the, the fibrosis will actually go away. So once they've hit cirrhosis, that doesn't mean they're there forever. You take away the insult, which is the hepatitis C, and they're actually going to have improvement of histology. And there's a lot of clinical outcomes, and this is just a summary of lots and lots of different studies that show increased, improved clinical outcomes in these patients. So patients that are cured of hepatitis C, and these are the ones that already have cirrhosis, have their rates of decompensation and needing a liver transplant almost go to zero. The rates of developing liver cancer almost go to zero and all-cause mortality improves for these patients as well. So certainly a lot of benefit 
from all of these different um, arenas when you're curing patients of their hepatitis C. So we have, I showed you one example on that timeline of therapy. Ever since uh, the first DAAs come out, this has been a very, very rapid uh, um, pipeline of new drugs uh, that are becoming available. And I put this up here, not so everyone here can memorize every regimen that's available, but to actually show you guys the similarity of how hepatitis C is treated and how HIV is treated uh, as far as di using different types of medications that use different mechanisms of action and putting them together, and that increases your efficacy, and it raises the barrier of resistance quite a bit for these agents. So you can see here we're mixing protease inhibitors, NS5A inhibitors, polymerase inhibitors, and some re uh, regimens still require ribavirin. So all those are mixed together in different combinations um, to show uh, to have high efficacy. And I'm going to show you a couple examples of that. But first, to kind of go through how these work, because there is a little bit of difference in HIV. So hepatitis C is an RNA virus. Uh, it is translated into a very long polyprotein. Protease inhibitors inhibit the uh, NS3 protease that cleaves the polyprotein into different pieces. And by inhibiting that molecule, you're stopping the cleavage, and, uh, and the virus is not able to replicate. So uh, this is a very, very effective uh, means of viral, uh, halting viral replication in this part of lots of different regimens. This is semeprevir, piratapravir, and the newer medication, grisoprevir, are all protease inhibitors. Uh, polymerase inhibitor, this is sort of a backbone for a lot of regimens. The fosfavir is uh, the most widely used one of uh, the polymerase inhibitors that we use, and very similar to how they're used in HIV. These are chain terminators, so as the primer strand is being built, sofosfavir attaches to the last nucleotide, and no other uh, nucleotides can be added to this chain as sort of the stopper. This actually ends up being a very, very effective uh, way of halting viral replication. And this is important because in hepatitis C, this polymerase inhibitor has an extremely high barrier to resistance. In fact, resistance tends to not be a very big issue with this molecule uh, whatsoever. And then finally, the NS5A inhibitors. Uh, these are large phosphoproteins that bind RNA are implicated in viral replication. NS5A inhibitors like ledipasphere, uh, decladosphere, and elbosphere, these are all uh, newer generation uh, NS5A inhibitors that bind this molecule and also uh, stop replication. So we're really dealing with those three categories of uh, DAAs. We have protease inhibitors, polymerase inhibitors, and NS5A inhibitors. These all sort of work together in different combinations. Okay, so when we're thinking in, in broad strokes and in big picture about HIV and hep C co-infection, um, it's actually, you're going to see, pretty similar to mono-infection. The duration of treatment is about the same. Uh, the medications we use are about the same, so there isn't like a special HIV regimen that we use to treat. Um, adverse out events are about the same, almost none. These are extremely well-tolerated uh, uh, drugs. And most importantly, the outcomes are the same. These patients do very, very well, and I'm going to show you a lot of data. Um, that's going to show you that there really is now equivalency when we're treating mono-infected with co-infected patients. But the only thing is drug-drug interactions may be significant. Um, and I'm going to show you that this is a little bit less of an issue now that we have more treatment options. Uh, we don't have to worry quite as much about drug interactions, uh, but it is something that is oftentimes the main barrier. And the main point of um, collaboration, if you're the HIV provider collaborating with another provider who's treating hep C, uh, or if you're that person doing everything, making sure that they're on an, uh, an antiretroviral therapy that is going to uh, coincide well 
with the hep C therapy. We'll talk a little bit about that. Okay, so this is why um, I think probably not as many people in the room treat co-infection is because for years and years, while it was interferon-based therapy, this was a miserable regimen that actually had even poorer response rates in HIV co-infected patients. Um, you can see for genotypes 1 and 4 hepatitis C, uh, cure rates, so these middle bars right there, uh, were well below 50%. So co-infected patients treated with HIV um, did very, very poorly with this regimen, um, and there was definitely a need for, for newer DAA therapy. Um, fortunately, uh, here we are now. So here is a summary of some of the newer medications, Dicladisvir and Cefosfavir, Lodipisvir and Cefosfavir, Ambitisvir, Paratapavir, Ritonavir, and Dasabavir. All of these have almost the exact same uh, response rate in the co-infected patient population to the mono-infected population, and they're all really, really high. They're all about 95% or higher. So there's no reason we can't cure all these co-infected patients because the therapy is just the same and is extremely infected in co-infected patient populations. But I want to take you through just some of the uh, data um, for these uh, new regimens so you can kind of see how these studies were done. Fortunately, um, the uh, pharmaceutical industry was very um, cognizant of the problem of HIV co-infection, and a lot of these studies were done specifically in co-infected populations. So we're not just extrapolating data from mono-infected patients. These are actually studies that were targeted towards HIV co-infected patients. This is 335 patients in ion-4 that were given ladipasvir and cefosfavir. These were either genotype 1 or 4 patients. Uh, these are the antiretroviral regimens that they were on or they were allowed to be on. Um, all these studies, I, I should preface, they were all taking patients that had uh, nearly uh, undetectable or close to it HIV viral loads, and they were all on stable antiretroviral regimens. So these are all taking kind of well-controlled HIV uh, patients, and these are the regimens that they were on. And here's your response rate. So there's a lot of these New England Journal papers, and even coming from me, and I, I like hepatitis C, they're the most boring papers in the world because they all do well, they're all getting high response rates, they all show the same graph, so I'm going to sort of spare you some of that. But it is pretty amazing to look at um, that this is the treatment response, and you can see nearly 100% treatment, whether the patients were treatment naive or treatment experienced for their hepatitis C, whether they're cirrhotic or not cirrhotic, nearly all of them were cured um, with this regimen. So the take-home points for cefosfavir and lodipasvir, great regimen for co-infected patients for genotypes 1 and 4. This is one pill that's taken once a day for 12 weeks. Um, they're effective in all the different patient populations I just mentioned. Um, although there are some drug-drug interactions, and we'll get to that um, kind of at the end of me going through the different regimens. Uh, the next is elbisvir and grazoprevir in co-infection. So this was studied in the C-EDGE trial. Um, 218 patients, so pretty good study, looking at 12 weeks of this regimen. Um, and you can see here pretty similar data as well. Um, high response rates, over 95% in all categories, whether they're genotype 1A or genotype 1B for their hepatitis C. Genotype 4 patients also did very well in this regimen, so very, very effective. But one thing that came out that's a little bit different um, is a lower response rate you can see in the genotype 1As. Uh, of patients that had baseline RAVs or baseline resistant variants. And this is actually the first time anyone has really ever talked about resistance in hepatitis C because we used to not worry about it too much. Interferon just sort of modulated the host response. We didn't really worry about resistance. 
The other regimens we had, it didn't seem to play a role, but this one, it actually did play a role. And patients that had certain baseline resistance, these are treatment-naive patients that had resistance to the NS5A inhibitor Elbisphere, um, actually had a uh, lower response rate. Um, so it's funny, and I, I kind of made this joke last night, when I talk to a room full of GI doctors and I talk about resistance, people start like shutting down their laptops and leaving the room and they don't want to deal with it at all. But in HIV, we've been talking about resistance all day, so this is actually pretty easy um, compared to dealing with HIV resistance. So uh, I, I appreciate you guys not all, all panicking on me. Now the nice thing about that too is that even though there is resistance per se, it's kind of resistance in a funny way because it doesn't mean that you can't use that drug. It just means that you have to use it for a little bit longer and add ribavirin. So in patients that you're planning on using Elbisphere and Grisoprevir, and you do have baseline resistance only in the genotype 1A patients, um, if they have one of those resistant variants, they can still be treated with this regimen. You just have to extend it to 16 weeks and add ribavirin, and they're going to have very high response rates. So it's just an extra step that you take with these patients. Um, but it is definitely worth it because this is a very good regimen. So why would you use this regimen, and why would we, what would be some of the reasons why you would even want to take that extra step and worry about resistance? Well, the, the first thing is there's nice data in renal disease. So we certainly have a lot of patients um, that have uh, chronic kidney disease and dialysis, especially in co-infected populations. This is a drug that's not metabolized through the kidneys. There's no dose adjustment. So you can use it the same even in patients that are on dialysis, which is extremely helpful. Um, and this, this is uh, going to be a major niche for this drug that's much in need. So this drug, Grisoprevir and Elbisphere, useful in genotypes 1 and 4, also one pill once a day. Uh, treatment naive, treatment experience, cirrhotic, non-cirrhotic, um, it's very effective. Check for RAVs in genotype 1A patients, but also very good um, for renal disease. Cost of this drug, the list price is less. It's about 50-something thousand dollars versus 90-something thousand dollars for cefosfavir and lodiposphere. So we're hoping that this may get on more formularies and be more accessible for, uh, for more patients. So that's another, uh, that may be another big factor. We'll just see. This, is, this drug is only a couple weeks on the market, so we'll see what happens. The next is decladosphere and cefosfavir. Um, this is an effective regimen in co-infected patients for genotypes 1 through 4, so 1, 2, 3, and 4, not just 1 and 4. Um, and it has high response rates when you use it for uh, 12 weeks. Uh, in both the treatment experience and treatment-naive patients that are co-infected with HIV. So you can see also extremely high SVR rates. But the one thing that I want to highlight about the utility of decladosphere and cefosfavir is these are, is a summary slide of the antiretroviral HIV medications that were used for all these patients. And the one unique thing about using decladosphere is decladosphere can be given in different dosages. It can be given in 30, 60, or 90 milligram dosages. So antiretroviral regimens that are going to increase uh, the circulating um, dose of decladosphere, you can give them a lower dose and vice versa. So you can actually play with that dose of decladosphere. And what that really will do for you is allow you to keep them on the antiretroviral therapy that they're on and then just add this and treat their hepatitis C on top of it. So you can see here much more options. And it may be, if you're running into problems with drug-drug interactions, uh, this may be actually a really uh, helpful uh, uh, regimen to put somebody on. So one through four, this is two drugs a day because they're not uh, co-formulated. Um, as I mentioned, you'll have some drug-drug interactions. This may be difficult to get. So pharmaceutical, so payers aren't going to want to pay for this because it's made by two different companies. You have to get it from two different places. It's not combined in one. Uh, so it's going to be um, a little bit more expensive in most cases. 
So drug-drug interactions, I keep talking about them, uh, but we'll finally get there. So um, there are quite a few, and I think when we're thinking about, I've, I've talked, I've spent the last 20 minutes talking about how easy it is to treat these patients, but there are um, some difficulties here, um, and that is trying to make their hep C regimen fit with the antiretroviral therapy. Um, there's a couple different sources, and I, I didn't want to kill you guys and kind of go over every single drug interaction because that's really not how practice works. Um, this is one option of an, and I just want to kind of go through how I think about it. Uh, HCVguidelines.org um, has um, a nice table here. Uh, this is uh, from Jennifer Kaiser, who works really hard on these. Um, and this shows, you know, green is good, red means stop, yellow is like, I guess, hold on, hold on to your seat, something like that, and watch a little more carefully. Um, but this actually is a nice kind of table format to look for drug-drug interactions between HIV and hep C drugs that you can look at initially. Uh, but what I really like, actually, and I think this is a very, very helpful resource, is the Liverpool Hepatitis website. Um, and the, the um, website address is right at the bottom. This is actually probably the most user-friendly. This is one of those really easy, you kind of click what they're on, click what you want to start them on, and it kind of spits out the interaction. And it's nice. So now that I've gone through all those different regimens, you can see, well, oh, there's going to be a big interaction with lodiposphere and sofosfavir. What happens if I try doclatosphere sofosfavir? Is that going to be a little bit easier? Um, and then you can kind of use it that way. And I found that this is probably the most helpful. It's pretty conservative. It's going to give you every possible interaction. So some of them you may just want to monitor and just kind of keep an eye on, but um, it's probably your best resource, and I would recommend um, going there as you're thinking about patients, uh, treating patients with co-infection. So a couple of key points that I just wanted to make sure we hit on. Um, co-infected patients are going to be very, very high priority because they do have a faster progression to cirrhosis. Highly, highly effective DAA therapy, so it's now very, very easy to treat their hepatitis C. Drug interactions are going to be your guide, and I only have a half hour, so I can't quite get into cost and access issues, but that's going to be a major, major uh, barrier for some patients to be able to get therapy. Less so in the co-infected patients because most payers realize all this and they'll pay for these drugs, but it's certainly an issue. Um, and really importantly, many hep C regimens are not going to require alteration of their HIV therapy. Remember that hep C therapy is very, very short. HIV therapy is very long. So if you can find something that works, even if it's a little awkward to treat their hep C, do that because if they're doing well in their HIV therapy and they're happy with it and they're tolerating well and their numbers look good and everything is great, don't start messing around with that if you don't have to because you only probably need them to have them on therapy for three months. So it's really worth it to find something that you can kind of keep them on. In the rare cases where you will have to change their HIV therapy, um, you want to probably keep them on their, their HIV regimen for about three to six months just to make sure that they're tolerating that, that new HIV regimen that they're doing okay and everything is going all right before you start their hep C therapy. Remember, it does progress fast, but you do have a little breathing room, and if you're going to do it within a few months, that's probably okay too. Um, you don't want to start them on five new uh, antiviral medications all at the same time. So I have about three minutes left. I just want to kind of go into what's new and what's kind of uh, coming up in, H in hep C. Uh, this is a new regimen, cefosfavir and velpatosfir. This is the next generation NS5A inhibitor. This is going to be a fixed-dose combination um, uh, pill, and it's been studied extensively. This is Astral 5, looking at HIV hep C co-infection, 12 weeks in a pan-genotypic. So if you remember, cefosfavir and lodiposphere was only genotypes 1 and 4. This is pan-genotypic. This is kind of a one-size-fits-all regimen in most cases. 
and very, very high response rates in the HIV uh, co-infected population. So you're going to see here um, about a 95% response rate. The nice thing about this is it's a one pill once a day um, that will work for all genotypes, which is going to be really nice. The next thing is acute HIV. So our neighbors to the south in Indiana have made the news, and everyone's aware of this, of HIV outbreaks. Of course, you know, no one ever talks about hep C. Oh, tons of those patients were co-infected, um, and no one really talked about it. But they were, um, and they need therapy too. So there are some studies going on about acute treatment, a treatment of acute hep C in some of these outbreaks. It turns out that when hep hepatitis C is acute, it probably doesn't need as rigorous of, an, of a DAA regimen. So they're kind of cutting it shorter and shorter. And this is data looking at only six weeks of sofosbuvir and lidipasvir in patients with acute hepatitis C. Um, and this showed about 77% cure rate, SVR12 rate, um, in these patients. Um, so really did pretty well with just a, a relatively short um, uh, duration of therapy, which obviously has a lot of public health impl implications for identifying an outbreak in HIV and hep C co-infection. This can make a lot of sense to put these patients um, on this regimen. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I do want to just make a quick plea. Um, so I'm in Chicago. If anybody that uh, is in Chicago is interested in learning more about having to treat hepatitis C, we do run a telemedicine clinic uh, through our organization called HEPCAT. Um, uh, there's a phone number to reach us, um, and this is a free CME 10-session uh, telemedicine curriculum uh, to get you guys uh, up and running treating hepatitis C through, a, through an echo format. So um, actually, just looking at the, the website is wrong. It's two C's and two T's, so 8341311 if you guys are interested. And I'll stop there and I guess open it up for questions. Thank you guys very, very much. experience with co-infected patients has been that payers won't cover uh, until severe cirrhosis is documented. Yeah, um, that is especially, so I think we looked at the demographics last night. I think most people live in Illinois or are treating in Illinois. And certainly for mono-infected patients, that's been the case. Um, Illinois Medicaid and a lot of Medicaid spinoff plans are only restricting therapy to cirrhotic patients, which is a whole whole nother issue in itself. I will say, though, if you document that patients are HIV co-infected, um, almost always, and we've noticed that you're getting um, therapy for these patients because they're at such a higher risk uh, than the mono-infected population. So it's all part of how you fill out the prior authorization, and, and uh, oftentimes they will pay for it, even on Medicaid now. What is, this, what is the status of uh, diagnosing fibrosis? The yeah, so the other um, nice thing um, is that we almost never need to do liver biopsies anymore. I haven't biopsied a patient with hep C in probably over two years. Um, there are great, um, and as, as part of this, uh, of our course that we do, um, we kind of go through staging in quite some detail, but there are things even from just basic labs called the APRI that we can use to differentiate cirrhosis from non-cirrhosis. There's send-out labs that you can do just regular serologic tests that can identify if they have cirrhosis or not. And there's even imaging. There's something called transient elastography or fiber scan, which measures the stiffness of the liver. It's a test that takes about five minutes. Um, that's really effective. So patients aren't needing biopsies um, anymore. In HIV, once the resistant virus is there, it's archived. Does that happen in HCV? 
So the resistant, you know, patients that develop resistance, so relapsers or patients that have baseline resistance, um, actually what we see is over a number of years, they do go back predominantly to the wild type. It is a really quickly replicating virus, but we don't end up having that much problems with archive resistance because we can cure the virus itself. So when it's completely eradicated, everything goes, including all the resistant variants. There's someone who wants to know whether the experience in real life mirrors the uh, trials. Yeah. Um, since DAAs have come out, there's been quite a few real life um, experiences. One of them is called HCV Target, um, which has measured uh, sort of just standard of care across the country. And what we are seeing is those numbers, you know, of course, real life data is always just a little step below these phase three clinical trials but they're about the same as the mono-infected population, so we're seeing it um, correlate pretty nicely. Here's a, a family practice physician who wants to know, should a co-infected patient be managed in collaboration with an ID specialist? If they're trained for, if they've been trained for HCV. Yeah, you know, I think that what we're noticing actually in our, in our um, HEPCAT and Project ECHO that a lot of patients, uh, a lot of providers who are used to treating HIV, um, they are picking up hep C very, very easily because it's all the same, you know, this is all the same stuff you guys have been doing for years. Um, so I would say that the provider that's treating, if the provider is treating H HIV and that that's a family practice provider or an ID or whoever it is, um, if they're treating the HIV, they could certainly treat the hepatitis C as well. The only caveat is when patients have very advanced fibrosis, if they're cirrhotic and decompensating, starting to have problems with synthetic function, varices, ascites, all the things we kind of get worried about, those people should probably at least be seen by either a hepatologist or a gastroenterologist because we may be thinking about things like liver transplant for those. But everybody that's well compensated, whoever's treating their HIV is probably perfectly well equipped to treat their uh, hepatitis C as well. Sure, sounds great. Yeah, you know, and, and that's kind of how these um, restrictive policies sort of came to be because it is, it, is, it is true if you have very early stages of fibrosis, you're not dying of liver disease anytime soon. It's probably years and years until that happens. So certainly for patients, especially that live in Illinois and are, are denied uh, uh, hepatitis C medications, we monitor them once a year and do some sta non-invasive staging to make sure that they're not progressing. Um, you know, my, my personal feelings of that are, you know, I, I, it may be extreme, but it's like not treating someone's hypertension until they have their first MI. You know, it's like you know it's going to cause it. You know it's just a matter of time. Why wait if you don't have to? So um, I th my hope is that as prices go down and some of these restrictive policies will change, we'll just be able to get people treated. You know, sometimes, of course, you know, you worry about people being lost to follow up and years going by and then they progress. But if we can't treat them, we do monitor them every year to make sure that they're not um, at risk of, of, of more advanced fibrosis. All right, thanks so much, everybody.